0: Listener supported, WNYC Studios.
1: I haven't seen my family in 15 years. I have a new grandson I haven't seen yet. We don't go out to dinner. We don't go to the movies. We live on uh, cereal mostly. We buy boxes and boxes of cereal. And when we could, we might get a chicken. And that's the way we live.
2: It's been almost a decade since Maria Dichter felt she had a measure of control of her own life. The problems began with $100, money that she and her husband needed to cover medical expenses, knee replacements, a pacemaker.
1: And someone, and I don't remember who it was, said, you know, if you go to this loan place and you have a bank account and you get a steady income, you could borrow $100 from them. And I went, and I was approved for $100. And I said to myself, great, that'll pay the co-pay and any medication that he might need at that time.
2: When Dictor went back in to repay the loan after 30 days, she was surprised to learn she owed $125. That works out to an annual percentage rate of 300%. So I said,
1: well, I only borrowed $100. This is well, that's interest.
2: Dichter paid. And not long after, she had some more medical expenses. And I'm saying to myself, oh my God, what am I gonna do now? Before all this, Dichter had never set foot inside the check cashing store on Southern Boulevard in Palm Beach County, Florida. She went back,
1: back. And I said, is there any way I could borrow just a little bit more?
2: Soon, she was there like clockwork. Every month, for eight years.
1: They know me. Since I walked in, they they have my check on that council because they know, oh, she's going to pay it.
2: Dichter's almost 74 and retired from the insurance industry. She has a Social Security check coming in every month. She feels like she should be able to get control of her finances. But control is always just out of reach.
1: So I finally said to them, there must be a way that you could give me an extension so I could pay it. Then they said, "Do you have a car?"
2: They were offering her more loans with her car as collateral. Dichter didn't take that offer. She says she felt trapped. She still does. And tomorrow, I have to pay $554. For nearly eight years now, again. she has renewed her $500 loan every month.
1: Short Each time, she's charged
2: $54 in fees and interest.
1: That, cost me from $100
2: that means Dicker has like paid I'm about $5,000 on top of what is effectively a single $500 loan. Recently, executives from the Community Financial Services Association, the same kind of short-term, high-interest lenders Maria Dichter hasn't been able to escape, they held their annual conference. It was in Florida, not much more than an hour's drive from Dichter's home.
3: It's actually kind of in a suburb of Miami.
2: Alice Wilder is an associate producer of Trump, Inc., and she was there.
3: We did one interview in a conference meeting room. I noticed these place settings like glasses of water and notepads and pens, and the notepads say Trump, and the pens say Trump. And what we learned is that the topic of the session that had just ended was government compliance. Moments ago, this room was full of payday lenders. These are companies that charge people really high interest rates to borrow money. They're learning how to work with the government to keep doing this legally. And all over their notes is the name Trump.
2: Because they're meeting at the president's resort, the Trump Doral near Miami. The money the payday industry is spending here on rooms and drinks and rounds of golf, it goes into the pocket of the most powerful man on earth. And right now, the Trump administration is moving to roll back rules on how to regulate their industry, the same industry that is making Maria Dichter feel trapped. Hello and welcome to Trump Inc. I'm Ilya Maritz.
3: I'm Alice Wilder from WNYC. And I'm Anjali Choi from ProPublica. Trump Inc. is, of course, an open investigation into the business conflicts of interest
4: around the Trump presidency. For years, if an industry wanted to influence policy, they had a few options. They could pay lobbyists, donate to political campaigns, or even fund shadowy third-party groups.
2: The payday industry spent more than $50 million on lobbying over the past decade. Then, along comes President Trump, and he adds a new option — put money into his pocket. Because as you know, I have a no-conflict situation because I'm president. When you book one of his clubs, it's direct deposit.
3: So these are some of the companies and industries that have spent money at Trump Properties the firearms industry, oil and gas companies, the makers of TurboTax, Intuit, GeoGroup, which runs private prisons, T-Mobile, the list goes on. So in this episode, we're looking at one industry's efforts to make itself heard. Payday loans, or small-dollar loans as people in the industry prefer to call them, are a little
4: different from auto loans or mortgages. The main difference is that these are short-term loans and the interest rates are high, really high. Lenders get access to people's bank accounts and are the first in line to collect when their next paycheck comes in. Government studies show that most payday loans go to borrowers who take out 10 or more loans in a year. In the end, many people pay more in fees than the amount they borrow. One borrower, Wayne Wright, described his debt
1: cycle. So I wound up getting a payday loan. And then I wound up getting another payday loan because the payday loan in the way that it's required to pay in that you borrow four hundred bucks, you gotta pay back four seventy five, but you gotta pay the four seventy five back out of your very next paycheck. And if you're having troubles this paycheck, it's highly doubtful you're gonna have an extra four seventy five or whatever it is to pay the next one.
2: Wright's sister eventually loaned him $2,600 to pay off the payday lender. He says it took about two years to pay her back.
1: And everybody doesn't have a sister who can send them $2,600.
4: Payday loans used to be illegal, and they're still banned in 15 states and Washington, D.C. Google and Facebook refuse to run ads for these kinds of loans.
2: The payday industry lends tens of billions of dollars every year. And it just so happens that at the exact moment Trump is elected, the business model of payday is under threat. The federal government is about to implement new rules designed to protect people like Wainwright and Maria Dichter.
3: There's a pretty new government agency called the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, or CFPB, that's going to do this.
2: They spent five years researching and then writing new rules that would prevent lenders from making loans so expensive that most borrowers take out one on top of another to cover their basic living expenses. People refer to it as the ability to repay rule. What we
4: see after Donald Trump is elected is that the industry swings into action. Small-dollar lenders donate more than a million dollars to the inauguration. And later that year, The CEO of One Payday Lending Company scores a face-to-face meeting with President Trump with a small group of donors who gave to the governor's campaign in South Carolina.
3: And oh yeah, they held their annual meeting at Trump Doral. Not one, but two years running. As far back as we could find, they had never before met at a Trump property.
2: The payday lenders' continued ability to make attractive profits hangs on obscure regulations that are now in
0: bureaucratic limbo. People often don't understand that 50 percent, if not more, of policymaking in Washington happens after Congress passes the bill.
2: This is The New York Times' Nick Confessori.
0: And in American media, we tend to focus a lot on campaigns, a little on Congress and legislating, and very little on rulemaking and regulation. But that's where the action happens. We'll talk with him more a little later. But we start at the Trump Doral,
2: where the people who are paying attention are gathered. It's a corporate get-together by the green fairways of the U.S. President's South Florida Club, where the air is sweet and favorable policy changes are seemingly just over the horizon.
3: Everything at the Trump Doral is golf. There are four golf courses, they host tournaments, and even if, like me, you're not into golf, you are still the guest of a golfer. I slept in the Gary Player Villa. There's even a picture of him in the bathroom. And I was in the Jack Nicklaus Villa. Our plan was to mostly stay away from golf and get as close as we could to the payday lenders. Basically, as soon as I went and dropped my stuff off, I went down to the lobby, and there was a networking cocktail hour happening. Um, so people were checking in to the conference, going up to a desk, getting these big blue lanyards with a giant name tag, hugging, greeting each other. It seemed kind of like a family reunion, you know. There was an open bar. Waiters were coming around with trays,
4: feta, cheese, and watermelon. Steak and yuca, coconut shrimp. Shredded chicken. Bacon and, and pork with applesauce. Tortilla chips. Fried plantain with chicken. A bunch of different little bites. There were people who flew in from South Carolina, Tennessee, I talked to someone from Canada. People came in from all over North America really to be at this gathering. It's a time to broker deals, be there and be seen by people in your industry and reconnect with old friends.
2: There were hundreds of lenders and vendors. Carl Rove was speaking. And if people were feeling good this year, it wasn't just from seeing old friends. There was a sense of relief, even giddiness they were no longer under imminent threat of having to make sure customers can actually repay loans. The industry viewed that proposed rule as an existential threat because studies have shown most of their customers are regulars.
5: If it goes into effect, will largely kill the industry.
4: This is Jeremy Rosenblum. He's a partner with Ballard Spar, which is a big law firm that represents the industry. Full disclosure, the firm has represented ProPublica in the past. Rosenblum was one of the few people who agreed to actually sit down and talk to us during this conference. He told us that the Obama administration had been determined to bring sweeping new federal regulations to his clients, the payday lenders.
5: And then, you know, the political situation changed. President Trump was elected. Director Cordray was gone. And, you know, there was a resurgence of hope in the industry.
4: Richard Cordray was Obama's appointee to head the CFPB. Trump replaced Cordray with an acting director, a former South Carolina congressman named Mick Mulvaney. And it's not an exaggeration to say he was hostile to the agency he was leading. He requested
3: a zero-dollar budget and said he would like to get rid of the agency altogether.
2: In a 2014 interview, before he led the bureau. It turns up being a joke, and that's what the CFBB really has been, in a, in a, in a, in a sick, sad kind of way, because you've got an institution that has tremendous authority over what y'all do for a living. Over but your-
4: this rule, the payday rule, which lenders were so scared of, was still on the road to being adopted when Mick Mulvaney left the agency to become Trump's acting chief of staff. Then Trump appointed a new director of the CFPB named Kathy Craninger, And she announced a proposal to rescind a major part of the role. This was just a few weeks before I met Rosenblum at the Trump Doral. He was feeling good.
5: I just got here and I haven't had a chance to speak to people, but I, I have to believe that it uh, will be pretty upbeat.
4: The CFPB said there was, quote, insufficient evidence and legal support for the payday rule. Now it's reconsidering the rule. Rosenblum doesn't know exactly what's coming. But whatever it is, it's probably going to be a lot better for his clients.
5: Look, if you're faced with a rule that threatens to destroy your company, and that's what we had, and somebody proposes to uh, revoke that rule, you feel pretty good about it. That development.
3: This is about as close as
4: Jeremy Rosenblum gets to saying, Booyah. Rosenbloom spoke slowly and carefully. He leaned away from the microphone. When it became clear that he was about to leave, I blurted out a final question. Why did they decide to have the conference here? My editor will kill me if I don't ask you about okay. the conference venue. So this is the Trump National well, I'm not hotel. going to talk about the
5: conference, right? <laughs> I mean, that's... Uh, no, I mean, that... The, the, Some people have raised their eyebrows. Like, do you think it's
4: problematic
5: or...? No, I don't think it's problematic. I think that, you know, they, they, they can have their conference wherever they want.
4: The CFSA said the Trump Doral is, quote, popular with our members and meets our needs. They would not tell us how much they spent there. So we looked at their tax records and spoke to a Miami event planner and someone at a competing hotel. Our best guess is that for two conferences, they paid the Trump Organization at least a million dollars.
5: But again, that, that's a question and answer that, that as far as I'm concerned, is not, not part of our conversation. I'm not getting into political issues
2: like that. Yeah. Oh, it's it's yeah. a nice place. Yeah. We'll be right back. We're back. And we're looking into the ways that one industry, payday lenders, has sought favorable treatment from the Trump administration. In one sense, this is nothing new. Many industries, from soybeans to drones to hospitals... They want things from the government, whoever's in power. The difference is, this is the Trump administration. President Trump set himself the goal of cutting two old regulations for every new rule adopted. And he signaled again and again, if you want him on your side, you ought to get on his team. Here he is thanking campaign donors with a speech at his DC hotel in 2017.
1: You can guarantee this. I will not forget. I know the people in this room. I love the people in this room. They're very, very special people, and
0: I will not, ever, I will not forget it. And so thank you very much for the success of all you
5: guys.
2: Mick Mulvaney, Trump's first CFPB director, was even more blunt. In 2018, he told a gathering of bankers that, with him, Doors open you if you're a donor. Times Do you believe this quote? Just Joe Scarborough flipped out over this as the quote was read on his morning show.
0: The Times says he also revealed that as a congressman, he would meet only with lobbyists if they had contributed to his campaign, telling the crowd, quote, oh. this is a quote, if you're a lobbyist who never gave us money, I didn't talk to you. If you're a lobbyist who gave us money, I might talk to you. In response, Mulvaney spoke.
3: This quote flipped a lot of people out, because even though Mulvaney was speaking specifically about his earlier life as a member of Congress,
4: it seemed to describe a whole world view. At the Trump Durale, we tried to register for the payday industry sessions, but we were rejected. In fact, we were kicked out of a few places.
3: One afternoon, we decided to duck out of the conference to get a look at the payday industry in action. We didn't have to go
4: far. Yeah, shopping center among a lot of other shopping centers. So we walk into a branch of Advance America. It's the largest payday lender in the U.S. Their former CEO, Patrick O'Shaughnessy, was the chairman of the board of the trade group that was hosting their conference at the Trump Resort. About-
3: Meanwhile, we are talking to the guy behind the counter here. His name is Marco, and he likes playing with clicky pens.
2: We have a lot of clients that come regularly to take the loans because they have like uh, their
4: payments on the week that they don't get paid. Mm-hmm. So they take it, uh, the advances, so they pay, and then come back.
3: When we talked to lenders at the conference, they kept saying, we get a bad rap, but we help people in times of crisis. We're often the only lender they can turn to when an emergency comes up. But for a lot of customers, coming here is actually a
4: routine thing. How many loans on average do you think a, a typical customer might have in a year, for example? Okay, depends. We have like customers that come two times every month, but having like consecutively for like three years. And then we have customers that come like every two months to get the loan. So you can, you know, predict that. It's
3: cross know. Ooh, gonna record getting hit by a car. We went to another lender, not far from the truck Doral, Scott. They call themselves the Money Superstore, and they're open
4: 24 hours. We run into this gentleman called Alfredo. He's a 22-year-old community college student who works in retail.
2: Payday wasn't as much as I expected, so just went ahead and just went and did a quick little loan. Mm -hmm. I just gotta make my car payment
3: (laughs) (laughs) are you still paying off the previous loans that you've taken out or are you finished on those
2: no i don't have any loans i try to be debt free um you know if i don't have the cash then you can't afford it that's the way i see it Mm -hmm. it's not something that i like to try and do often um but i know like if i need it like i try not to be too much late on my car payment because it's going to affect my credit so i'm like you know what i'd rather just get the loan and get that payment out of the way and then just pay this little fee that doesn't hurt my credit at all so i'd rather do that than having that fee
3: At first, Alfredo struck me as almost like a poster boy for the payday industry. Here he is, really responsible, borrowing infrequently, always paying back on time. But if every borrower was like Alfredo, the industry would suffer. Because the real money in payday is when borrowers fall behind and take on even more loans. Like Wayne Wright and Maria Dichter, who we met at the beginning of the story. Alfredo went back to his car with a check to pay his auto loan.
4: Advance America shared this comment with us by email. Quote, Our customers borrow from Advance America as long as they need to, and only as long as they need to, before moving on. They said, quote, Most typically, a customer comes in once or twice, and we don't see them again.
2: AMSCOT conceded its short term loans look expensive when expressed in annual terms. Quote, it doesn't mean there's not a place for small dollar credit. It just has to be offered under a strict regulatory framework. Also, the AMSCOT CEO emailed to say that the Trump Dural is near a major airport and has golf and good weather in March. Quote, hard to beat. They also offered a very attractive pricing. End quote.
4: We also shared questions with the Community Financial Services Association. They told us, quote, the CFPB's original rule, as written by unelected Washington bureaucrats, was motivated by a deeply paternalistic view that small-dollar loan customers cannot be trusted with the freedom to make their own financial decisions.
2: They did not tell us whether they'll book the Trump Doral again next year.
4: We shared a detailed list of questions with the Trump Organization and the White House. We did not hear back from them.
2: As we were reporting this story, we kept coming back to another reporter's work. Nick Confessori did this New York Times Magazine cover story in April, exploring how the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau has changed under Trump. And it has changed. He spoke to more than 60 current and former employees and people who've had dealings with the Bureau. So we called him. Hey, Nick. It's Ilya. How you doing? Hey, Ilya. How are you? Nick said, if you go back to the CFPB's beginnings less than a decade ago you'll see that it was conceived as a sort of
0: indestructible financial guardian for the little guy. So the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau was designed by liberals with the lessons they had learned from the financial crash. When the regulators that Washington had had done a poor job, um, had allowed problems to slide, had been captured by the industries that they oversaw. And so they wanted an agency that couldn't be captured as they considered it by the industry it was going to oversee. And that meant it would have a director who would be all-powerful instead of a commission. The commissioner, in this case the uh, director of the Bureau, would serve uh, for a fixed term, and they couldn't be removed. Uh, And finally, this Bureau would be funded directly by the Federal Reserve and not by Congress.
2: So that's the situation when President Obama's man at the CFPB, Richard Cordray, quits to run for governor of Ohio. President Trump now can appoint his own boss for the CFPB, and he makes a really attention-getting choice. It's Mick Mulvaney. Am I right that if you wanted to test the resilience of this new agency, Mulvaney is your man?
0: I think there are Few people in Washington who were more determined enemies of this bureau than Nick Mulvaney. There are a couple, but not many. Uh, and what this was really an interesting test of was what happens if you take this bureau that has been deliberately insulated from checks and balances and congressional oversight, where the director has been made very powerful and hand it over to a director who doesn't like the agency. What happens next? So a few things that happen next. Mulvaney
2: requests a $0 budget. He embarks on a basically pointless name change, which is then canceled, but it's expensive. Those, though, are almost more like gestures for public consumption, I would think. So at the same time, what is going on inside the agency? Was it fulfilling its mission to protect consumers?
0: The way I would describe it for listeners is that the founders of the agency, Elizabeth Warren and her colleagues in the Obama administration, were trying to design this intricate machine. And what my story is about is about watching Mulvaney essentially kind of pull apart that machinery. He didn't raise it. He didn't set it on fire. It was more like he he kind of unscrewed a, a bolt here and put a little sand in the gears over here and stopped these two pieces of the machine from being connected so they couldn't talk to each other, uh, and slowly making the whole thing less efficient. Which brings us to the payday
2: rule, the rule that says lenders need to check their borrower's ability to repay, the rule that lenders said might actually kill some in their industry. Nick learned a lot about how the rule, which was this close to being adopted, instead got put on hold. There was a meeting with senior people from the CFPB and the
0: payday lenders. And it was last April, April uh, 2018. The members of the association, the, the payday lenders, are champing in the bit. They want action immediately. The payday industry is planning a lawsuit to block the rule. And just
2: to underline that point, they bring their lawyers with them to the meeting with a top aide to Mick
0: Mulvaney named Brian Johnson. So according to my sources, uh, Johnson is really taken aback by this. This is the Mulvaney. In this meeting, as Nick reports it, the payday
2: lenders are basically asking the bureau if the bureau would welcome a lawsuit.
0: And Johnson, Mulvaney's aide, says, Look, I, I can't talk to you about a lawsuit that we might be a party to. So they seem to have followed the book there. But the next thing that happens, Ilya, is really interesting. The association walks out of that meeting. And a couple of days later, they filed their lawsuit. So now it's going to go before a judge. And what I found was a bunch of email correspondence where essentially the Bureau's lawyers decided that the best thing for everybody was if they could get a judge to allow them to not implement the Obama rule. Huh. And they seemed to have planned that strategy out as a legal strategy together. And the idea came from actually the Bureau. It was their idea. Like, wait, here's a solution. Let's try and get a judge to let us off the hook from enforcing this rule that our new director doesn't like. And then you guys can stop suing us. I think that once the lawsuit was filed and the agency under Mulvaney had to respond somehow, then they exercised their right to open discussions with the lawyers And then they started working on a strategy together and kind of more or less in lockstep.
2: The judge gives the Bureau what it wants, which is time to revisit the rule. By the way, the Community Financial Services Association, that's the payday trade group, told us in an emailed statement that following a series of conversations, quote, the parties agreed that asking the court to stay the litigation while the Bureau reconsiders the small-dollar rule would serve to conserve judicial resources reduce expense to both parties, and, if the rule is repealed, avoid the need for future litigation. And
0: abusive,
2: in testimony before Congress in, uh, in March, Mulvaney's successor, Kathy Craninger, said this lawsuit was one reason to reconsider the, the proposed sell. payday rule.
3: Uh, that rule. is the, the subject of litigation and ongoing litigation, and the courts, in fact, have stayed our ability to, to uh, move forward with the rule. And last year... The Bureau told the courts that there would be reconsideration, so I, I look forward to the full evidence. But that's, that's largely what this is about. It's that uh, the basis of
2: the... rule. Kraninger was confirmed in her job last December. In speeches, she likes to talk about using all of her agency's tools, not just enforcement and oversight, which are aimed at lenders, but also education, which is about the borrowers.
0: Have you formed an impression of her and the way she's running the Bureau? You know, in, in in the months I was reporting the story, when, when her name first was being floated uh, and when she was going through her nominating process, people inside the bureau were very curious about her. They weren't sure if she was going to be a Mulvaney apparatchik, a stand-in for him, somebody who might take a different view. What's basically happened is that with the exception of the name change idea that Mulvaney tried to push through, which she put the kibosh on— You know, she's more or less kept up the policy shift at the bureau. Her approach is a little different. She's not as confrontational. She doesn't relish in kind of poking Congress in the eye, uh, as Mulvaney seemed to at times. But the policy is basically the same. She is putting into place the new payday rule, the gutting of the old rule that Mulvaney set in motion towards the end of his term there. Do you think what
2: Trump has done with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is any different from what a President Rubio or maybe a President Jeb Bush would have done. Do you think that Trump's sort of distinctly transactional approach does actually make a difference here?
0: What I've observed in writing about uh, the deconstruction of the administrative state in Washington under, under Trump is that the president has no strong beliefs about this stuff. I think that when you have a president who's very transactional who doesn't have a lot of big ideas of his own, who's basically focused on immigration and trade and is willing to just outsource his policy to various pieces of industry, you actually do get more radical pro-industry policy because there's no counterweight. There's no normal bureaucratic process. And you get more of what we have under Trump, which is more and more like straight-up industry lobbyists. You were running uh, you know, the big bureaucracies and the regulatory agencies. And to me, it shows, like, the contradictions of of Trumpism, that there's this notional populism, but there's so little discipline, and the president is so easily convinced to hand over the levers of power to to industry, that what you end up with is, like, radically pro-industry policy.
2: What do you make of the fact that the Community Financial Services Association had their annual meeting at the Trump Doral, not once, but two years running? Do you think something like that could actually get a message to the most powerful man in the land.
0: Absolutely. I don't think you can overestimate how much these little blandishments mean to the president. When I started kind of reporting on the Trump administration, I kept thinking, well, I mean, he's not gonna like hand out a policy favor to somebody because they stay at his hotel and he got a couple thousand bucks out of it. That's ridiculous, that's, that, that's peanuts. But then I realized that Donald Trump is a hotel operator and a golf course operator. These are his businesses. And I realized more and more it's exactly the kind of thing that he responds to. And even if he is not responding, everybody in Washington acts as if he is responding. That's why the Trump Hotel in Washington does pretty well, even though his golf courses in some other places haven't done as well. It's why the foreign embassies and different associations have moved their parties to the Trump Hotel. It's why more and more stuff is happening at the Doral. Uh, Everybody understands that the president likes it when you go to one of his properties and hold your event there, and that's why they switched. So,
2: Elizabeth Warren, who first I think conceived of this agency, and then the Democrats in Congress, who wrote it into the Dodd Frank law, they wanted to design a perfect machine, something that would be impervious to um, impervious to Republicans. Frankly, because this was created by Democrats, um, how is it doing?
0: I think that when you look closely at the enforcement settlements and some of the agreements, when you look at the rulemaking. That Mulvaney and his successor have begun, when you look at the requests for information, the RFIs as they're called, that they have put out to industry about how to change their practices, what they're really trying to do is turn the agency into a less aggressive cop, a cop that listens to the criminals as much as the victims. A cop that will hand out fewer tickets, that will be eating donuts more often, sitting in the squad car more often. What they want is just a less vital and active bureau that is more susceptible to the kind of pressure uh, that industry has often found works with other agencies throughout the government.
2: Nick Confessori, thank you so much.
0: It's my pleasure, Liam.
4: We sent the bureau a detailed list of questions about the payday industry's efforts to stymie a rule that they didn't like, and the optics of payday lenders booking the Trump Doral. The CFPB on email didn't answer those questions, but referred us to a Kathy Craninger speech, a court filing, and the documents outlining the payday rulemaking.
2: As for the payday rule, the bureau is now combing through thousands of comments and will make a decision in the coming months on whether to gut those regulations. Whatever happens, there's a good chance it'll be challenged in court. Trump, Inc. is an open investigation into the Trump family business. Send us your tips. The email is tips at trumpinkpodcast.org. We also have secure methods to communicate. Find out how at Trumpincpodcast.org. And while you're there, sign up for our newsletter.
4: And we're still taking tips on the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Go to propublica.org slash
2: Meg Kramer is the senior producer of Trump, Inc., associate producer Catherine Sullivan, Bill Moss is the technical director, the editors are Charlie Herman, Eric Umansky, Nick Varshaver, and Robin Fields. Jesse Eisinger and Paul Keel from ProPublica contributed valuable brain power. Jim Schachter is the Vice President for News at WNYC, and Steve Engelberg is the Editor-in-Chief of ProPublica. Thanks this episode to Anne Fleming at Georgetown Law, Chris Peterson from the Consumer Federation of America, Alex Horowitz at the Pew Charitable Trusts, and Diane Stander from the Center for Responsible Lending. Our original music is by Hannes Brown.